You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Very pleased to have Dick Morris here with us at IntelligentTalk.com. Um, Mr. Morris was a chief advisor for President Clinton. Time Magazine and George Stephanopoulos said no one had more influence over Clinton uh, in the 1990s than uh, Mr. Morris. So, Mr. Morris, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Well, good to be here with you, Ralph. I think you're kind of a pioneer in the way you're doing radio. Well, thank it's, you. Uh, it's increasingly going to be the future, not that box we have in our college. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. If I could just ask you a, a bit about your background, Mr. Morris, I think you went to um, Stuyvesant High School, which, of course, is the elite high school here in New York. Right. Uh, I loved Stuyvesant. It was, uh, to me, the most competitive environment I've ever been in, counting the White House. Okay. Stuyvesant High School. <laughs> well, yeah, and you, you ran some campaigns there, including for Gerald Dowd, who is now a congressman, I believe. Yeah. The, uh, I had a, I worked with a group of young people at Stuyvesant, and we uh, took over the student school, student government, and then uh, and then moved that organization uh, to the west side of Manhattan uh, with the same people. Jerry Nadler, who was my roommate back then, Dick Godfrey, now a state assemblyman, Nadler is now a congressman, and uh, we sort of transported the government from Stuyvesant High School to the West Side, and uh, we all, and we set up political clubs, democratic clubs, up and down the West Side, and uh, leaders of the Democratic Party in New York are selected by primaries, and they're called district leaders, and uh, we ran, when we all turned 21, which was the voting age then, we ran candidates for district leader in seven districts against the established leaders who had been there for quite a while, and we won all seven of them. And um, we set up basically a political machine that was kind of a left-wing machine, but still a machine. Uh, we were called the West Side Kids by our adversaries and friends. Is that how you got into politics, political consulting, by doing that, Mr. Morris? Well, uh, that's how I got into politics. I started that way, and then increasingly people all over New York, Democrats all over New York, would want my political support. Uh, and I would inflict advice on them at the same time. <laughs> and uh, eventually they came to mainly pay for the advice. And uh, then in 1977, when I was 30, I decided to go national. And at that point, there was no such thing as a political consultant. It was not in the dictionary, really. And uh, I was kind of the first one of them. And um, Bill Clinton was my first client, and I was his first consultant. I flew out to Arkansas when he was attorney general, and I made up some excuse that I was there on commercial business or something. So he would see me without feeling he had to pay the airfare. <laughs> and um, we had we spoke for a 15-minute meeting that lasted about four hours. And uh, it was as if, for him, the whole world had suddenly become transparent, and he was able to see how you can actually win elections 
was really a revelation to him and, of course, to me. It was the beginning of a long career. Then I worked for Democratic senators and Senate governor candidates. In 1980, I decided to become bipartisan and worked for some Republicans as well. And um, in 1987, I decided to switch to the Republican Party because I adored what Reagan was doing. And from then on, I handled all Republicans. And I overall had about 30 senators and governors who I represented. And then uh, in 1992, when Bill ran for president, I couldn't work for him officially because he was a Democrat. And I had become a pure Republican. But I worked with him informally a lot. And then when he ran into trouble in 1994, after he lost Congress in the by-elections, he uh, asked me to come in and really run things for him. Mr. Morris, if, if I could... If I could just take you back to 1978, that's when he first ran for governor, and he, he won that race, and then he lost in 1980. Were you involved in the 78 race? Uh, yeah, I, I ran the 78 race. With, yes, I did. I ran the 78 race. But it was not a serious race. Uh, the real issue for Clinton was would he run for senator, which was up that year, or governor. Okay. And the Senate race was very crowded with some very strong candidates. And as a result, there was almost nobody running for an open governorship. Now, Mr. Morris, Clinton loses in 1980, and he famously comes back. I think Arkansas was a two-year governorship then. He comes back in 1982. I think from that point on, you, he uses you 82, 86, and 90. Is that right? Because then it becomes a four-year term. Yeah, 78, 82, 86, and 90. In, uh, in 1979, right after he took office, two-year term, he fired me. Uh, he said he wanted someone with more of a national reputation. And I think he also resented the fact that I was giving him advice on what he should do as governor. Uh, he felt that was sort of outside of my purview and beyond my scope. And uh, particularly, he decided to raise the cost of automobile license fees. They call them tag fees in Arkansas. And I warned him against it. He resented me for doing that, fired me. Oh. And then he lost the election, lost the election largely over that. And the day he lost the election, they asked Hillary called me and said, please come back and help him get in office again. Now, um, now if, if I can take you to 1990, obviously he's considering running for president in 92. Isn't there an incident where he throws you down and like really, really manhandles you in a way, right? And Hillary says he only does that to people that he loves? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it came in, uh, in 1990, which was the last governor election that he ran in. Uh, he was uh, unexpectedly challenged in the Democratic primary by a guy who sort of came out of nowhere to mount the challenge. And it was a very effective campaign. It was kind of funny. His ad was, you know, Salvador Dali clocks. Yes, yes, uh, the, 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 the time, the importance of time, whatever, immortality. Time. Yeah, that was the negative ad on Clinton. He'd been in office for 10 years. Okay. They at one point had everybody at the Little Rock Airport waving goodbye to the plane. <laughs> he was off to Iowa to run for president. I see, okay. And the ads were very effective, and he was gaining on us. And he won when it would have ended his career right then. All right. And uh, I was working for Clinton, and he was very unhappy because he felt he might lose the election. Fast forward, and he did not. We ran negative ads and defeated the opponent. He went on to be happy 
before the election in May of 1990. He was very, very frustrated, very upset. And he, uh, he had a meeting with me that was supposed to be early in the evening, and it turned out he didn't show up until about midnight. And uh, when he came, I suspect he'd had a drink or two. And uh, Clinton doesn't drink much, but when he does, he can't hold his liquor. He, uh, he, he turns crazy. And um, he was very mad at me because he had gotten into the race largely on my recommendation. He had a question, do I just run for president in 92, or do I first run for a final term as governor? And I persuaded him to run for governor because of a lot of different reasons. And he was blaming me because he might lose that election. All right. And so he was screaming at me, cursing at me, uh, yelling. And he had never done that before. And, uh, and I was very upset. And uh, I had become a full-time Republican by then. He was my only Democratic client. Uh, in fact, uh, Lee Atwater had just told me that he'd work with me, but not if I continued to work for Clinton. Wow, Lee Atwater. I didn't know you worked with Lee Atwater. Huh. I did, but actually I was wrong. It was Newt Gingrich who said that. Okay. But yeah, I worked closely with Lee. I loved him. And, uh, and he, I, so I got up and I stormed out of the governor's mansion. Okay. And I said over my shoulder, thank you. Now I can be a 50-state Republican. <laughs> Go ask yourself and you can lose this election on your own. And uh, he stormed after me and tackled me and threw me to the ground and knelt over me with his fist back. And Hillary grabbed his fist, grabbed his arm, pulled him back, and yelled, Bill, 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 stop. Think of what you're doing. Stop, Bill. And Clinton sort of, sort of snapped too, and he was all red-faced and sputtering, and he jumped up. And uh, I jumped up and ran out of the mansion. Wow. And uh, Hillary followed me. And uh, normally the state troopers would take me back to my hotel, uh, but she told them not to and to wait. And she walked me around the grounds with her arm around me saying, uh, calm down, Dick, calm down. He, uh, he, does, he, he didn't mean it. He doesn't mean that. He's, he's just a little upset. Please don't hold it against him and so on. And then she said the great line that I love, he only does this to people he loves. Right. Now, if I, now, that's why you were not involved because of that in the 92 presidential campaign. But then Clinton gets into trouble in 94. The Congress goes against him. He's low polls. And he sort of brings you back in. Is that right? Yeah, uh, before the 94 election, uh, six weeks before, uh, he contacted me and he said, I'm in real trouble here. Uh, can you help me out? And I did a poll for him. And uh, I came to, it was a very interesting conclusion. He was trying to get his Congress elected by talking about the big things he had done. Uh, decreased the budget deficit, lowered interest rates, created five or six million new jobs, and so on. And my polling showed that nobody believed any of that. And they said either it hasn't happened or it happened, but you had nothing to do with it. But my polling showed that the small things he'd done uh, were things people really believed and were enough to get them to vote for his candidates for Congress. Things like appointing a pro-choice judge um, to the Supreme Court, passing the Family and Medical Leave Act, uh, setting up AmeriCorps of uh, volunteers to, to work in domestic problems. And uh, I told him, drop the big things and run on the small things. Okay. That was on the comp 
conference call with him and Hillary giving him the results. And he kept saying, but I did these things. I'm going to run on my record. I've accomplished stuff. I want people to know that. And then I was kind of sarcastic. I said, well, you know, deal with that in your retirement at the moment. Focus on the stuff that will get the guys elected to Congress. Okay. Hillary was powering Adam to do that, too. And he told us all to go to hell. And he ran his own campaign, continuing to make these claims, which people didn't believe. Then about then a week before the election, he called me and asked me what I thought was going to happen. And I said, you'll lose the House and the Senate. And he said, well, I could conceivably lose the Senate. I doubt it. But I would never lose the House. It had been Democratic for 40 years. And um, I said, well, just in case you, you think what you think can happen does happen, should I send you a statement to use the next day? He said, yeah. And then the next day, so he's giving it up to TV. <laughs> now, and he called me and said, come on in. I want you to come back and run things. So you come back, and obviously it's, it seems a time of recovery after 94. One of the things you do is this famous thing called triangulation, taking the best from both parties and, put, and putting them on the center. That Was that your idea, this triangulation? Yeah. Okay. My idea, my word. But uh, let me just fill in another interesting sure. thing. When I came back to work for Clinton, uh, I was worried that it wouldn't work out. You know, all of his staff opposed me and stuff like that. So uh, he and I both agreed that I would come back secretly. He, because he didn't want to admit that he was hiring a Republican, and me, because I didn't want my Republican clients to know I was working for him. All right. Because I was afraid they'd all leave me, which they did, but it didn't matter then. And uh, so, I, uh, so I chose a code name, Charlie. And from November 1994 until April 1995, I worked with the president, saw him every week, and was closely involved in everything he did. But nobody knew that I was. His staff didn't know. Congress didn't know. His cabinet didn't know. Um, in fact, there's one famous time when he was meeting with his cabinet, and they came in and said, Charlie's on the phone. And he said, excuse me, i got to take that. <laughs> and I'm sure the CIA spent a lot of money trying to figure out who Charlie was. Right. right. Uh, and then in April, he decided to go public with it. Okay, and then, so, I heard you say in another interview, it was one of the highlights of your life advising Clinton, that you had a wide range of, you could talk about domestic policy or foreign policy. I mean, did you advise him, like, for example, to not not do the Haiti thing and not get involved in Somalia? Or were you involved at all when he put an uh, aircraft carrier between China and, and Taiwan to protect Taiwan? Did you get involved in those things at all? I, I did brief him a lot on foreign policy. Uh, my input to him on domestic policy is stuff that I gave more or less in public at a meeting with his top staff that happened every week, every Wednesday night. Uh, the foreign stuff, he asked me to wait until everybody had gone home and then talk to him about it in private so people wouldn't know that I was giving advice on that. Okay. On the matters you mentioned, Somalia was when he first took over as president. and uh, Then I was not really you know, his main advisor, I was just kibitzing with him. Okay. And I begged him not to get involved in Somalia. I called it the hostess president, Bush has left for you. And uh, on the other one you mentioned was Haiti. And uh, I told him, you're invading the wrong damn island. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then on the aircraft carrier with Taiwan, no, I was not involved in that. 
said, look, the Republican Party is a group of people who are focused on specific issues. Uh, you're born into the Democratic Party. You, uh, if you, you are black or Latino or a union member or, or one of the categories, and you gay, you become a Democrat. But Republicans are basically an issue-based party. Solve their problems, and they go home and they'll stop bothering you. So you agree that we should reform welfare. You agree that we should balance the budget. You agree we should cut capital gains taxes. You agree that we should uh, dramatically increase sentences for crime. So go do all those things okay. and uh, accomplish them. And then they'll choose some other house to want. They'll all go home. Sure. Now, and uh, the idea was accomplish their agenda. And many times use your programs to do that. I called it use your tools to fix their car. Okay. And I said basically all Americans believe in that stuff. But there are certain issues that are the specialty of the Democrats and certain issues specialty of the Republicans. So fix the issues that motivate the Democrats and they won't that motivate the Republicans and they won't come after you. And uh, he did, and he really left the Republicans with nothing to say in 1996. Okay. Uh, easily won re-election. Now, Mr. Ward, I just want to take you to the Lewinsky matter. He was, as I understand, because I've heard you talk about this a little bit in the past, he contacts you, you get like a pager, you call the White House, not through your cell phone, because you were told to call, I believe, through a landline. He basically tells you what happened, and you said basically to dance around it. Then Hillary gets involved, and he then makes a definitive statement, and then later he's found out, and Hillary does his her pantomime, as you, as you say, which she, she appears upset. Is that, is that pretty much how it went down? Yeah, that's a good summary of it. Uh, when he called, when he paged me, I called him back. We never spoke on cell phone. You weren't allowed to. And um, he told me, and I'm quoting him now, ever since I got here to the White House, I've had to shut my body down, sexually, I mean. But I screwed up with this girl, and I may have gone so far that I can't prove my innocence. And I had no idea what the hell he meant. Uh, about six months later, it dawned on me. I was on the set of The Hannity Show. And it suddenly occurred to me, and I said, oh, my God, is that what he did? <laughs> but uh, so I told him that Nixon was thrown out, not because of the things he did, but because of the cover-up. Right. I said, just don't lie to people. Okay. And he said, well, what do I do? And I said, let him down easy. Uh, imply that there might have been a relationship, fudge about what the relationship was, um, say it's private, all that kind of stuff, but give them a while to adjust to the fact that you had had sex with this girl. I forgot to mention that I told them that first day, let me take a poll to test this. Oh, and you paid for the poll yourself, right? Yeah. I said to him, look, uh, I think you can tell them the truth and get away with it. And he said, you think so? And I said, yeah, let me pull it. And then I tested it, and I got back to him. And I said, they don't mind the adultery. They do, but they'll get over it. What they can't stand is your lying to them under oath. Right. And uh, so I said, soft hands on this. Uh, finesse it. Uh, don't dig in. Then I believe that what happened was that, at that point, we stopped talking, really, because he pointed out that these conversations weren't privileged and he could only talk to his lawyers. So um, the next 
sexual relations with that woman. So he wags and, a finger and everything? Yeah. Yeah. And I've surmised that Hillary, that he went to Hillary, and she said, knowing full well, obviously, that he was guilty. I mean, if your husband is a, is a record, is a kleptomaniac and he's arrested for shoplifting, you don't go blaming the camera. <laughs> you, you know the what happened. Right. So um, Hillary, I think at that point, said, look, if you don't deny this, I can't defend you. And that was a key point in the relationship. Hillary's power was entirely derivative of her marriage to Bill. You don't get elected first lady. And if the marriage was seen to be a fraud or not to be a real marriage, then her legitimacy was completely undermined. Okay. And therefore, she, more than Bill, had a stake in denying what he was doing. Yes. So, but Bill needed her to deny it. So he did. He did what she wanted. And he became entrenched in that position and ultimately led to his impeachment. So let me just ask you, just, you've described, I think, Bill Clinton as like a sign. And when high beams are on the sign, it reflects back to you. When the, and when the beams are not there, the sign is sort of off. I think sometimes he would just call you and just start speaking. I mean, I guess my question is, is there any soul to Bill Clinton or is he just a complete you know, animal, essentially. I mean, I, I, I met someone, did you, did you ever meet a man named Tommy Kaplan, who was Clinton's roommate at Georgetown? No, no. And he's, a, he's someone I met a few times at, I, I have a club where he's a member of, and he's a very nice, gregarious person, and Clinton has helped him with his book, for example, and written a lot of notations in the book, and, and really been a good friend, according to Kaplan. So I'm just wondering of, of your opinion of Clinton as far as, like, does he have a soul, what kind of a, you know, or, or maybe it was just a political relationship with you, and could it be different with other people, or, or no? The metaphor you're, you're mentioning is, is an important one. He's like, he, he shines on you like a headlight on a headlight reflector. Okay. And it comes back to you and you'd swear that it was a headlight, but it wasn't. It's just the reflection back. And Bill spews empathy to everyone. And you'd swear that it was a genuine emotion, but in fact, he's just reflecting what the emotion you're projecting. Okay. You know, you, I... I've heard clinically, you talk. Sorry. Clinically, I think Bill Clinton is a narcissist. And a narcissist is defined as someone who has no real sense of who they are. And the only way they can understand who they are is by seeing their reflection in your eyes. So it's kind of like narcissists looking in the pool. So it's kind of like they say, um, they say, oh, wow, I must be really bright if this very bright person thinks I'm bright. Or I must be really attractive if this beautiful woman thinks I'm attractive. And it's it's like a, uh, a dolphin who bounces sonar off the bottom of the ocean. And it comes back and it gives him a sense of what he looks like, who he is, where he is. And a submarine, same deal. And that's, I think, what motivates
is very real there there. Uh, I think that he is basically incapable of love. I think that Hillary genuinely loved Bill, and I think that Bill genuinely loved Bill. So they had something in common. <laughs> and, well, and you know, I, I, you like the Robert Carroll books on LBJ, I believe. I've heard you say how good. And yeah, I, I love Robert Carroll. And one of the things Robert Carroll said about LBJ is that he knew that LBJ cared because he taught after after graduating from college at a Mexican school in Texas, at a very poor school, and he he really tried. He fought for that school to get them equipment to play, you know, games and baseball and textbooks. Is, I guess, and I'm thinking about Bill Clinton's background. I know he, he volunteered for McGovern in '72, and he went to Moscow in 1970. Uh, whatever. I mean, he, he, is there anything in his background that shows that he is a caring person, or is it all just is it all just politically thinking? And, and uh, no, no, his his entire life has was entirely dedicated to public office. Okay. Moving up politically, there was no interval in there where he, you know, just worked for the good of the world. Um, Okay. Uh, let's get to what Bill Clinton really believes. He's a very pragmatic person. And when I worked with him, his, if you asked him what, what he want to do as president, he wouldn't say things like bring the country together, give people a sense of opportunity, create a feeling of optimism. He wouldn't say stuff like that. He would say, I want to bring the unemployment rate down below four. I want inflation to drop below three. They want to create uh, at least a million jobs a year. Uh, I, I want to reduce the crime rate significantly. It would be statistics. It would be kind of objective facts, uh, not the emotional conclusions that flowed from it. Okay, I just want was a bit of a problem because we found that it was better to communicate with the voters using values, not facts. And I worked on his understanding that. I call it teaching the president to tell <laughs> Yes, I mean, I'll, just, I, I'll say one more thing. You don't even have to respond, but you mentioned that he, he's gotten $238 million in speaking fees. You mentioned that people like Grant and Harding as presidents were um, had corrupt administrations but were not personally corrupt, and you said basically, basically Bill Clinton was. But if I could just move on to um, Obama and Trump. You were correct. Let me say yes, that sure. financial corruption uh, was something that was relatively new to me. Uh, he was not that way when I worked for him. Uh, he had gotten messed up in Whitewater, uh, but, you know, that was an investment that went sour and he tried to cover up his role and more importantly cover up Hillary's role. And the impetus to make money came from her. Uh, she would frequently complain, why can't I, why can't I have what other families have? And I said, you can if you pay for it. In particular, at one point she wanted a pool in the governor's mansion. And there was that feeling of resentment that she had dedicated her life to public service, not to making a lot of money at a law firm and where and she's and therefore she could steal whatever she could because she was entitled to it. But wasn't that was far more of her feeling than Bill. Wasn't she on the board the of Walmart? Wasn't she on the board of Walmart and um, you know the Rose Law Firm, yeah. as you said? Did, didn't that produce a good income for her in the eighties? A decent income, not great. I doubt she made she made more than I'm sure she made no more than a hundred each year, and probably more like about seventy or eighty because her time was limited because she spent most of her time working with Bill and uh, and appearing in public on his various initiatives. If you were to trust one of them, Mr. Morris, who would you pick? If you had to pick one of them to trust. 
Just keep, keep oh, doing yeah. You you will okay. All right, so if I can. <laughs> okay, I'll just turn you to the 2016 election. You you were right in, in saying that Trump was going to win, and basically, you you've said a number of speeches. I'm trying to summarize all the things that you basically said. You said something like 76 million to 107 million uh, on welfare under uh, Obama. In other words, the welfare numbers went from 107 million from 76 million, and this doesn't include Social Security. You're saying that's a tipping point we were approaching with there'd be more people on welfare than work. You really believe that if Hillary had been elected, we would have passed that tipping point. Lots of also you you also said that twelve to fifteen million illegal immigrants would have been made citizens, and basically Republicans would have could say goodbye to winning any elections for decades to come. Both of those are right. When uh, Hillary, uh, I'm sorry, when Obama left office, there were approximately hundred and ten million people receiving needs-based benefits from the federal government. That doesn't count Medicare or Social Security or veterans benefits, but it does count Medicaid, food stamps, welfare, and so on. Uh, and there were 114 million adults employed full time. Uh, so you have slightly more working than on welfare. And I think those lines would have crossed. They may in fact have, I don't know the way to that. But, uh, and I believe that would set up an irretrievable momentum for the To uh, sorry, Republicans want, want Hispanics to work and not vote. The Democrats want them to vote and not work. I think it was one of the quotes you said. that Trump got one-third of the Hispanic vote? I mean, given the, the way it was characterized in the media and the things that... No. He, no? Say the Hispanic vote, uh, it's a little bit like describing the Polish vote or the German vote. Uh, it, because for many people, it's way buried back in their ancestry. The polling I've done indicates that there is a world of difference between those who were born here and those who were born abroad. Uh, for example, when I asked people in a poll, I once did, about uh, about amnesty and about you know building a wall and the anti-immigration stuff. The uh, foreign-born Latinos were overwhelmingly liberal, but American-born people of Latino heritage broke about even on those questions. Uh, so there's a large base in the second and third generation, and after a while, people always ask me when will be. Republicans start winning the Hispanic vote, and I answer, when they stop calling him that. <laughs> okay. One of the things you also said, I heard you say, is that the Republicans, you think, are basically now the blue-collar party, because that was basically the base of Trump's support, while the Democrats are more like the rich, which is the coast of okay. New York and California. And did, did Trump really bring about that change? Yes. Uh, it's the fundamental key to his election. He was not elected because of Hillary's negative. Those helped to put him in a position to win. But the thing that 
our base and in all of our politics. The most fundamental thing is learning about American politics when you step off the boat is that rich people are Republican and poor people are Democrat. But if they're white, it's the exact opposite. Rich people are Democrat and poor people are Republican. And that's because there be the sense developed among these white high school educated people that there was affirmative action for blacks, for Latinos, for gays, uh, for handicapped, disabled, uh, all kinds of stuff, but not for them. And uh, as Hillary spoke about helping men and boys, and the men and girls, uh, women and girls, uh, these folks asked, well, what about men and boys? What about us? And I think that Trump came to understand that that was a demographic group. In fact, the polling firms of the 2016 election did not aggregate them into a banner point and break out their answers by that demographic. They would say blacks think one thing, whites another, men think one thing, women another, high school educated one thing, college another, but they never combined them and said, what do high school white men think? And uh, at my suggestion, Fox News did that in the polling than it did. And five, four weeks before the election, among that cohort, uh, white college and white high school educated men, uh, Trump was winning by 14 points. And two weeks out, his margin had swelled to 28 points. And three weeks out, uh, I'm sorry, one week before the election, uh, his margin had swelled to 30 or 35 points. And on election day, the exit polls showed he carried that cohort with 46% of the vote, by a margin of 46%, okay. 46 points more than Hillary. And that's with that move at the end, which really would have held them to victory. To understand its impact, compare the election results in Florida and North Carolina on the one hand, with Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin on the other. Florida and uh, North Carolina have been through the session nationally, but a very limited one, and they remain with relatively low unemployment and still have the, the bloom of the sun belt on And as a result, it wasn't very severe. And Trump ran two points or three points better in those states than Romney did. Okay. But the northern states were hit hard with it, and it continued to last. It became a gigantic recession, huge unemployment. And in those states, uh, Trump ran about 15, 20 points better than Romney did. And uh, there you can see the impact of that vote. In retrospect, I used to think in 2012 that Obama was winning, was, was winning because uh, of his ability to attract minority voters. Then, as I looked back on the election, I came to realize that it wasn't only that. It was he was alienating white high school graduate voters uh, by being sort of the, the rich, non-caring industrialist, the, the financial deal maker. Okay. Uh, I just want to say, um, react to, I'd like to read something back to you, Mr. Morris, just have you react to something that I heard you say. First of all, you mentioned that um, NAFTA, with the trade deficit with Mexico, 
went from something like one billion to seventy billion under NAFTA. The deficit with trade deficit with China has gone from something like forty billion to four hundred billion. And also, you mentioned one of the reasons why Trump was elected is something you, you went back to Abraham Lincoln, who said that he understood that slaves depressed wages. And you said that Trump essentially understands that people who are here illegally, who work for almost nothing, also depress wages and makes it very tough for the average American to get wage rise. Is, is that a fair um, summary of your views? Yeah, you're incredible, you know, Ralph. <laughs> if, I, if I die, you can take my place. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd be honored. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with Lincoln. Uh, he grew up on a subsistence farm by his father, Tom, and they never had any money at all, just crops, which they ate. And uh, when he was a teenager, he went to work as a riverboat river uh, worker on the Mississippi steamboat. Which Lowry has a wonderful book called Lincoln Unbound that explains what really had getting a money wage for the first time and how that permitted him to move up. But his basic point and the Republican Party's economic point back then, moral point with slavery was wrong, but the economic point was that whites could never move up if there were five million people who could be made to work for nothing. Right. And that's really true now with illegal immigration. And I think the cracking down on immigration, partially which at the moment is just talk because Trump is scaring them from coming in. By talk he's working on it. It's actually cutting the number, but it's it's less wall than Trump's rhetoric. But uh, because of that, wages are showing real world rises now. Three percent real income last year, the highest we've had since the eighties. I think that, but getting back to the trade deficit, which is the other cause of working class immobility, uh, when we let China into the World Trade Organization, uh, we had a trade deficit of 40 billion with them. Uh, it's now 250 billion. Uh, and when we created NAFTA, this trade deficit, the U.S. actually had a trade surplus with Mexico. And now it has a $70 billion deficit. So clearly those policies were bad for the U.S. But it's very important to understand why they are. It's not so simple to say one country or the other country. Uh, Two-thirds of the firms in China that export electronics are owned by Americans or Europeans. So... A large part of this is Americans and Europeans who farm out the production, make money from the profits, but not from the wages. And unraveling that is a key element in what Trump has to do. Ultimately, I think what his point is, is that he wants to do reciprocal free trade, uh, which is you take care of my problem and I'll take care of your problem, rather than universal free trade where a UN-like organization like WTA imposes a stricture of free trade on everybody as a juridical right, and uh, and it can be litigated and enforced. Uh, And I think Trump is basically right at that. Right, and I, I think you said also, too, that it was okay to have these big deficits when we were pulling out Japan and Europe. From, from the out, Europe, we have, a def, uh, I guess, a surplus, but Japan, when we were pulling them out of um, the, the problems of World War II and the, um, the, the obviously, destruction, but now we really can't sustain these huge deficits. And um, you mentioned also something called the Kondraki. Stay there for a minute. Yes. you got to go back to the, uh, the 
idea of the United States economy is a locomotive that pulls these countries out of poverty okay. by opening up our markets to them. Uh, first Germany, then Japan, uh, then Korea, then Taiwan, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and now India and China. And as a result of the U.S. market, uh, the number of poor people in the world is about I mean, a billion and a half less than it was 20 years ago. That's defined as uh, GOE on the five-part scale that the U.N. has. And uh, that's a huge achievement, monumental. Foreign aid had nothing to do with it. Opening our market to foreign products did. Okay. And you mentioned, I may get the name right, but something called the Kondrafi cycle, where essentially the debt becomes unsustainable. Is, is that, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. I don't know if it's, it could be Kondrafi, sounds about right. Uh, he's a Russian economist who uh, wrote in the 1920s. And he said, rather than focus on the oscillations in the business cycle, look at the debt cycle, the longer term cycle. And basically, he says, that every uh, fourth or fifth generation rebels, gets into serious trouble because of high indebtedness. And that the recessions the world had in the early 1700s, in the late 18th, the late 19th century, uh, the mid 20th century, and now he says, or he's dead, but now he would say, uh, are because of the huge buildup and overhang of debt. And he said that that debt ultimately becomes unsustainable. And uh, those who would say, well, what's happened? Why haven't we had a crash? I would say the answer is quantitative easing. The Fed has just wallpapered with imaginary money. Right. And literally money that's called fiat currency. It's created just simply because the Fed says it exists. I think you said something like there's $230 trillion in debt and a $75 trillion GDP as of two years ago. So... It certainly sounds like we're um, excessive amount of debt versus GDP of the world. Um, yeah, exactly. I just want I just want to ask Mr. Morris, as we come to the end here, I want to bring us back to Trump and Mueller. If I were President Trump and I was calling up you and asking for your advice on how to handle Mueller, and obviously my inclination as Trump is to, is to fire him or sideline him or maybe change attorney generals, what advice would you give Trump? Would you just say to let the course play itself out and, or would you advise something else if you were advising on how to handle Mueller? It's not at all clear that Mueller has a case uh, that is publicly sustainable. Uh, if he, uh, it's pretty clear he does not have a case when it comes to collusion, uh, and that he will have to settle for indicting smaller fry. The reason he's going after Manafort and Gates is that if anybody knew about collusion with Russia, it would be Manafort. Right. That uh, he was a Russian political consultant, basically. Consultant to the Kremlin when you get down to it, you know, working for Yanakovich. Yanakovich was one of the, uh, it was basically Putin's puppet. And uh, I think he figures that he's going to squeeze Manafort and see what comes out. Uh, but I don't think there was collusion. I know Manafort well, I've worked with him, and I don't think that that's in his playbook. Uh, and what eventuated, what happens in the United States during the election, is pathetic to say that influenced the election. $100,000 of internet ads. Yeah, I agree. But, but Mr. Morse, let's just say he finds violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in Kazakhstan, for example, or there's something in the Trump business dealings which could incriminate him. 
What would you think? Then that's a question he should be fired, or should just let that play out too? I, I don't think that we'll find anything that Trump has done as president, or even as a candidate. It is possible that if you go back ten years, you might find some stuff. Okay. But nobody's going to impeach him over that. Let the Mueller investigation run out of fuel like a forest fire, and uh, I think that that's likely to happen. I think that at some point, and, and let that play itself out. Don't create an obstruction case by firing anybody. Okay. Secondly, while that's happening, do appoint a prosecutor for the FBI scandal, which has the potential on CIA, the intelligence committee scandal, the stuff I wrote about in my book, Rogue Spooks. Right. That, that can become the major scandal of our time. Okay. Just a final thing. Um, you did some work on Brexit, I believe, right? What, for, what, yes. what, did you, what work did you do for that, Mr. Morrison? Well, uh, in 19, in 2000, uh, 2000, no, uh, yeah, it was 2000, uh, I was on a cruise and uh, in the Mediterranean, a guy approached me who was the head of a new party called UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, and they asked me to come over to Britain and to work with them, and uh, I did, and I helped set up UKIP, and uh, I piloted to its first major electoral triumph in, I think, 04, when they uh, elected 17 members of the European Parliament. Okay. Since then, I've been sort of an advisor to Nigel Farage, the head of UKIP. And uh, I made one contribution to them that was kind of fun. Uh, they were articulating all of the things they would change and, and the damage that the European Union was doing to Britain. And they wanted a campaign slogan that embodied it. So I suggest the slogan of no, pronounced like a two-year-old, no, and have it N-O, and the O became the circle of stars in the European Union. <laughs> wow. The Ghostbusters line through it. Wow, okay. So that logo is basically you can really help carry them. But I'm a strong sympathizer with Brexit. I strongly endorse it. And I feel that it reflects the antipathy of the global economic structure to democracy. They regard democracy as an inconvenience. Bannon is right about that. And they regard, they regard the need to consult people as being hopelessly antiquated and not worth it. Basically, we've, unite, we've achieved a global economics, but not a global politics. Okay. So that the, so that the economic system is impervious to uh, the demands of the people. And that was the root cause of Brexit and the root cause of the Trump victory will continue to be as long as the economic establishment does not understand that it has to take account of what people want and think and feel, particularly as we enter an era of robotics. Okay. Just a final thing. Um, in these foreign clients, I think you've dealt with Vincente Fox of Mexico. You had person, you had a client. Yeah, one of my proudest things is that I ran the campaign that coupled the pre in Mexico. Right. And helped get reelected with Calderon. That was the first time since the revolution that the PRI lost an election, I believe. It was the Mexican Revolution, yeah. right? And like, yeah. I mean, do you speak Spanish? How do you get involved in a race like that? Or like, or when you get involved in the Ukraine, it's just well, mostly through... everlasting shame that I've not learned Spanish, although I can went along pretty well. Uh, the, the funny thing is, in most countries, politics at the top level is conducted in English. Really? Okay. In fact, uh, the president of... Um, of uh, uh, Bolivia, uh, named Gami. Evo Morales? No, it, 
him before him. Okay. Uh, was was beaten in part because he really didn't speak Spanish. Really? Okay. He spoke English. <laughs> so you do just fine then, just advising against just, just to these polls and everyone yeah. speaks English, I guess, right? Yep, that's right. I mean, do you still continue to do this international consulting too, or is it mostly domestic yeah. that you're doing? It's both. So, uh, international. International is your primary thing now? So, uh, my primary thing is punditry and commentary within the United States. Okay. Uh, this kind of thing. And, uh, and I do that a lot online and uh, through Facebook and all of that. I have a daily video I put out called The Lunch Alert. And you can go to my website, bigmorris.com, and sign up. And it's a five-minute video I just taped it this morning. Uh, every day I do a new one. And uh, I also have at 4 o'clock every day a half-hour internet uh, Facebook radio show or Facebook TV show streaming video called Deep Six to Deep State. And six, the number, not the spelling it out. And you can go there for a half-hour, 40-minute commentary of my take on what's going on in the world. That's what I mainly do. But I also uh, do foreign campaigns and Okay, yeah, I, I watch many of your lunch alerts at dickmorris.com, and I find them very interesting. I go to your website all the time. And just well, one final thing. You haven't had any, when was the last time you had contact with the Clintons, Mr. Morris? Any time in the last, since since 15 years or so? Yeah, uh, 15 years ago, I was at, uh, in the hotel where he, they were holding the Clinton Global Initiative. On the Sheraton? It was in the lobby, and I went over and said hi to him. And we had a friendly chat for five or ten minutes, uh, nothing serious. I was struck by his total lack of energy. We shook hands. It was almost like I was holding him up. And, uh, and I realized at that point that he probably does not have the energy to tell Hillary what to do, uh, which I think accounts for a lot of his and her problems. But it was probably, um, that, that probably the Sheraton Hotel. He sends me a card, but there's white powder on it, so I don't open it. <laughs> well, that's probably pretty smart. Well, Mr. Morris, um, Thank you so much. It's been very interesting and educational, and thank you so much for your time. And um, that's been incredible. You know everything. Well, thank you. I tried to prepare, Mr. Moore, so it was very interesting having you, and I was very happy you came on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye bye.